0: It is your boy, and uh, today is Sunday, uh, September 24th. And I, 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 uh, how do I feel? I feel, uh, like I'm on a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I feel two things. On the one hand, I feel like very, uh, uh bored and a little like caught up in this routine, and everything feels very mundane day to day. And at the same time, internally, I feel like I'm kind of being, um, yeah, like I kind of have like a um, planning or cognitive whiplash. I don't even know where we were last time Uh, we connected, except I was probably saying something about my grand plans for the future, which was like going to Taiwan and doing X master's program and then maybe doing a PhD and yada, yada. And um, probably within 12 hours of that, after kind of working myself up into a frenzy and having all these Google, uh, Google Sheets that I had created with all these different programs and degrees and yada, 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 I had a kind of... Um, uh, I had another one of these therapy sessions where I just sort of give voice to some kind of niggling reservation that I've been feeling that gets validated and then it kind of blows up all of my plans. And again, I, I know... You know, I keep coming back to this idea of the should ideology and all that stuff. And I sort of talk about it as if I know something about it. But one of the sort of recurring disappointments or maybe good things in my life is I'm reminded. I, it's like no matter what I do, no matter what chapter of my life I'm in, I'm just found. I, I just continue to find how pervasive and kind of um, yeah, pernicious this operating thought is and um, you know, I'm in my last semester at Berkeley. I'm supposed to be doing this honors thesis. Here I am talking about maybe uh, going to graduate school, which is not off the table, Um, but this idea of, like, getting a doctorate, and it's like, you know, I've been meeting with some professors and talking about the idea of, like, well, you know, teaching is something I really enjoy doing, but the sort of looming, looming thing that I'm failing to acknowledge is this idea that I actually hate research. Um... I'm supposed to be working on this honors thesis. I literally can't bring myself to look at it. And although I sort of, you know, the way I frame it and think about it for myself is that there's something really wrong with me, I think the real insight is, one, it can be done. Like, that that's not the problem. The problem is, it, you know, the assignment will get finished. The thesis will get written. But it's not that there's... It's not because there's something profoundly wrong with me that this is not getting done. It's because I actually have no interest in doing it. You know, I had this thought as I was... Well, and I think I actually brought this up to my professor, but I'm sitting in this Confucius class. And although I will continue my language study and continue to, you know, uh, learn classical Chinese, and a big goal of mine is to actually read a lot of these texts in the original... Chinese at the end of the day when I read this stuff in translation or when I'm just reading other people's scholarly work or articles about these books or when I'm just reading the source texts themselves like I kind of have everything I want you know my at the end of the day if being a professor means having to publish and write my own articles and research papers on sort of Minutia related to these texts, and that's probably not going to be very fulfilling for me. It's something I'm not really motivated to do now, and I don't know who I'm kidding if I think by going to school or making this sort of graduate school commitment that I'm going to sort of look up and and find the energy or the motivation to do that work. So I feel like I've kind of taken what I thought was a bunch of steps forward only to sort of slide back to this place of, really trying to reconnect with, like, what do I want to do? Not what should I do or what's practical. How do I actually want to spend my time? And at the end of the day, you know, the only thing I have to really go with is, like, you know, in my last job, I really enjoyed the teaching component. Um, The material was fine. Uh, Even though that field was not really my calling, I enjoyed the teaching aspect of it. I loved connecting uh, with our volunteers and seeing their progress. It's something that I think I do pretty well. But, you know, you don't need to be a college professor to teach. And um, if you're not going to be a college professor, you may not necessarily need a doctorate. And so in a way, some of that insight has helped me. You know, I don't know what it's going to look like necessarily. It could be teaching at the community college level. It could be teaching at high school. The point is, I don't know. I actually have no idea. But since we last spoke, I'm feeling pretty confident that... um, you know, my focus has shifted away from kind of looking at doctorate programs to just kind of looking at terminal master's programs. Um, and I actually that's kind of like repivoting has actually like totally changed kind of what I've been looking at, and actually kind of has helped me locate some programs that I think would be more interesting. I, f- I have found a bunch of uh, English taught Chinese philosophy programs in China, um, which would be nuts on one level because I've never been to China. So the idea that I'm even thinking about. Going to school there for two years seems pretty nuts, but I had this kind of fortuitous thing where I've been emailing some programs. Just you know, sometimes I have different clarifying questions, either about language requirements for schools that do that are Mandarin taught, or um, making sure that uh, because my undergraduate degrees are not in philosophy, that I would still be eligible for a program. Uh, the good news is that most ma- master's programs are pretty flexible, um, and and actually, at the end of the end, end of the day, it's becoming increasingly clear that although a master's degree you know, might get you a little bit more money in the professional market or help you get a little bit more money in your job. In terms of academia, like nobody really gives a shit about it, which is kind of crazy. But, um, um, but, uh, where am I going with that? Oh, I ended up emailing, it's called uh, East China Normal University in Shanghai, and they have the English taught Chinese philosophy program. And I got an email back. Um, I think I was asking about, yeah, my relevant majors and, um, maybe just a qualifying question. Although the courses are taught in English, will the texts actually be read in classical Chinese? And the professor, um, American professor, who happens to be teaching there, just got back to me and said, hey, why don't we just jump on like a Zoom call and I can introduce the program to you, which I thought was very generous. And so we ended up doing that and speaking for like an hour and a half. And the way he related it to me, it's actually like exactly how I would like to be spending my time. In the first semester, you just read Confucius. You read the Analects, and you kind of go through it line by line. You have another class on the Dao De Jing, and you just go through that line by line. And you have another class on Mengzi, and you just go through that uh, line by line. And uh, it's not a comparative philosophy program. You just sit and read the Chinese classics. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure what that gives me on a on the job market, but if I had to commit to a master's program tomorrow, I'm not saying it would be this program necessarily, although it's, you know, the fact that this person was willing to meet with me and talk to me about the program. And actually, they put me in touch with a couple other graduate students. I was able to speak with one for about 45 minutes over the phone. And uh, uh, the professor even shared, they have like a YouTube channel. So I can kind of see, they've been conducting most of their classes remotely uh, since COVID. And a lot of those uh, have been put online. And so I've been able to kind of see what the uh, the program is like, anyway, the point is, is a lot of that stuff goes a long way. Um, but again, for some reason, it feels a little crazy, you know, to kind of be, again, putting aside the practical application and just thinking about how do I want to spend my time? You know, what would I do if I could just wave a magic wand and sort of, you know, spend my time doing what I want? It, it's almost It almost feels like this program has been custom made for me. And... You know, the good thing about studying overseas, if you're considering an overseas program, you know, if you study in Taiwan and China, it's very easy. Well, first of all, well, I'll say this. It's very easy to get a fully... It's 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 very easy to get a scholarship. Not only can your tuition be funded, but you can be housed. You can get a living stipend. And, um, you know, when I crunch the numbers, it's, you know, you're not living like a king, but it's pretty freaking comfortable. But even if you were self-funded... Um, exponentially cheaper than studying in the United States or getting a graduate degree in the United States. So, um, you know, again, I don't know what the future holds for me and it's not clear to me that if I was, you know, looking for work in the private sector that a degree from East China, Normal university or national Taiwan university would mean anything to a hiring committee, um, at a job. But if through some twist of fate, I happen to stay within the field whether it's, I don't know, teaching at the high school or community college level. Um, yeah, maybe having an overseas degree could be um, meaningful. However, as I'm sort of going off on this tangent and um, cycling through this stuff, I realize that I'm actually not only sick of this topic in my own mind, but I'm, I'm kind of sick of talking about it here. And uh, I can only imagine if I feel that way, how you feel. So um, I'm sort of desperately searching through my mind for some other topic. One thing that comes to mind is dating. Um, I sort of have sort of picked that up again, and I've gone on a couple of dates recently, various types of dates. Um, one was uh, met up with someone, you know, I live here in the Bay Area. I ended up like driving <laughs> like 45 minutes to meet with someone kind of out of the way in San Mateo and having kind of a walk date. Actually, I've had two of those recently. And also, I had this other date where I connected with someone remotely over video chat. And, um, you know, none of them were great. They were all kind of just okay. And it's kind of funny. I'm kind of in this place where I was kind of reflecting on this stuff, which is, you know, I also think of the dating that I did in Taiwan. And it's kind of funny to look up in your life as someone who did not do a lot of dating when they were younger and has done a lot of dating in their adult life. To realize like when you're younger, you know, dates are this kind of huge ordeal in some way, which is, I don't know if it's a lack of confidence or lack of experience or something, but there's this way in which dating when you're younger is just kind of like, I don't know, you're just kind of getting through it. In some ways, I'm thinking about like my early performing, like when I was just starting to play open mics and stuff, which is... You know, you're not even really aware of what's going on as much as you are just trying to get... you're Like, you're, you're kind of just so inundated by the experience or the sensory experience of what you're going through that you're not even really present for it. You're a little overwhelmed is probably the way to think about it. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is I'm at this point where, like, I, I don't know. I was trying to think, like, since, let's see, June, July, August. Like, in the last, like, three months, I've probably gone on at least a dozen dates with a dozen different people. And they've all been just fine, you know, and so that shows me, you know, as I, I guess as I've gone, as I've sort of like, you know, as I'm heading out on these dates, I felt pretty confident. And I think it's just because I feel like I'm at this point in my life where I'm pretty comfortable just kind of being myself, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that there's no pressure or that there's no nerves going into a date, you um, But there is that cushion of experience, which is like, okay, I've done this enough times that I know that at the very least, whether or not I show up and and sparks fly with this person, I can have a conversation with somebody. It's not going to be catastrophic. I'm not going to, you know, have a horrendous date. Or at least if I do, it's going to have nothing to do with me. You know, I'm confident in my ability to just kind of, you know, engage in a conversation with somebody relatively comfortably. Um, But I also think, like, the fact that I've done... I mean, just in terms of time and numbers, I've probably done more dating in the last few months than I've done at any other point in my life. Um, but I also guess when I was younger, it seemed like I was it was easier to, for me to find someone in a fewer amount of dates. Whereas, like, for some reason in this chapter of my life, I'm probably doing more dating now than I've ever done, and yet it's feeling harder to find someone where there's even kind of a spark beyond like just wanting to be friends with somebody and I I guess I don't know on the one hand I don't know where I was going to go with that except probably not I don't know I don't know what I, where I was going to go except as I'm talking about it now I'm thinking maybe it just is as you get older and you become more discriminating in what you want there's two things that probably disappear I think on one level at least for me you'll have to sort of defer to your own experience but I think dating when I was younger was there was a huge component It was just about finding someone who liked me you know the benchmark of a successful date was like not hey did I find somebody who I really liked although I guess that's that's I don't want to say that that wasn't part of it but I'm saying the the scales were tilted a little bit in terms of I think being less secure about myself Um, you know kind of looking to the other person to tell me that the date was going well there's just you know, the, there's just a little bit of imbalance there, which is I'm really just trying to look to see if somebody likes me. You know, there's kind of a... The, yeah, the power dynamic is kind of shifted, whereas maybe once we're older and we have a better sense of what we want, um, maybe it's both harder... And, and, and I'm also assuming that the other person is arriving to the date with the same type of shift in standards. It's probably harder both to find somebody who meets your requirements and, you know, through some magical twist of fate where the planets align you happen to tick the boxes for them as well because one maybe maybe some of that spark when you're younger is just predicated on looks i mean every single person i've sat across from for these dates is somebody that i'm like attracted to um so that's kind of taken care of but maybe when i was younger that was just kind of enough whereas no matter how the date really went and i'm talking like a detached sort of objective sense of how the date went you know, maybe when you're younger, the benchmark of a, su- of a successful date is even if the conversation was stilted, you're just kind of sitting across from someone that you're physically attracted to and that's just kind of enough to keep you two together. I mean, I'm trying to extrapolate this out to like a lot of us when we think about our first relationships, you know, they go on twice as long as they should have and it was people that we never should have been with. But then you think, well, what was the bond keeping you two together? And maybe on some level, it was just we were two people who were physically attracted to each other who on some level believed that if we broke up with each other, that there wouldn't be other people out there for us. You know? And so some of that, I mean, if that can inform the long-term relationships that we have, it can definitely inform dating. But once that veil has been lifted, once you realize, one, there's an infinite number of people out there that you could... Uh, that are available to you for at least for this quality of a relationship right then in a way it both be it, it becomes harder to find someone who's going to be satisfying for you it's going to be harder for obvious for them to find someone who's going to be satisfying to them and then the chances of you two have you know meeting uh, especially in this day and age where we're all meeting on dating apps um, the idea that the algorithm will just Happen to show you the photo of somebody, uh, you know, and you and you will sort of mutually swipe on each other and be able to meet. Uh, seems very diminishing. So I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm at this point now where I've heard from a lot of other people, especially women, because I think that you know they're way more inundated on these dating apps than the men typically are. Is I hear a lot about this like burnout from online dating. Like, oh, I gave up on online dating, or I'm sick of online dating. And I'm not saying I'm over it forever, but I do feel like after going on as many dates as I've gone on and just kind of like not meeting someone that I do feel a little kind of saturated, like I kind of need to take a break. And, um, you know, I'm not sure what that means for you exactly, but um, it's just something that I've been kind of thinking about. When I was on this uh, video date with somebody, we were just kind of shooting the shit and in the background. I had on my computer, it was this, uh, I was sort of connected with this person in the evening. And it was kind of at the same time that San Francisco Opera was actually streaming. Uh, I had this thing where, like last year, especially, I went to so many classical concerts. It was ridiculous. I actually ended up, I went so frequently. I was often going at, at first of all, at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. Um, Uh, Especially as a college student, I was able to get like really good tickets very cheaply. So it wasn't a a huge financial investment, Um, but it was just a big part of how I was spending my time and how I continue to spend my time uh, while I study and as a student, which is I bike to school every day. So I always listen to classical music. I'm inevitably because of my schedule, and this semester it's especially bad, but sometimes I'll have, you know, hours to kill needing to study in the library between classes. And so uh, in addition to doing the, all the reading that I have to do. I always listen to classical music. But I do this with literature. I do this with movies. I always set these curriculums for myself. I can't just like follow my interests where they lead. I have to like give myself a, a course of study. And so one of the ways that I actually organize my listening, and it began uh, probably around the time I transferred to Berkeley, although I wonder if I did it while I was going to junior college as well, but I would basically look at the concert calendar for the San Francisco Symphony, kind of decide all the concerts that I would be marginally interested in or might want to go to, and I would create these playlists in Spotify where I would take the you know whatever pieces they were going to play, and for each piece, for every program that I want might want to attend, I would create these playlists of almost every available or I should say worthwhile recording that was available on Spotify. So. Just to take our random example, if I saw that the San Francisco Symphony was playing, uh, well, I'll take an example that's coming up. They have a concert coming up where they're playing Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, and they're playing Strauss's Alpine Symphony, I would create two playlists, one for the Violin Concerto, one for Alpine Symphony, and for each piece, I would create a playlist of at least a dozen recordings that I thought were sort of demonstrative, either conductors that I knew or orchestras that I know to be reputable. Um, And sometimes if the piece is relatively rare, if it's not like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony where there's thousands of available recordings and you're sort of curating 12 or 15 of them, if it's a lesser-known piece, like... I'm trying to think. um, um, Who wrote Helios? Who is that piece not Charles Ives, Nielsen, Carl Nielsen. I think it's I think it's called the Helios Overture. You should check it out. There's probably only about 12 to 16 available recordings of that piece, and it's relatively short. It's about maybe 10 to 15 minutes. So you just put every available recording on Spotify into a playlist, and that's my homework. Before that concert date, I have to listen at least once to all of these recordings. So I'll take one piece at a time, like the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and I'll just listen to that playlist as I'm biking to school as I'm doing my homework so I'm not only hearing the piece on repeat over and over again I'm getting different recordings so it's not like I have just one single reference recording that's kind of imprinting me on how the piece should sound I'm hearing the same piece played over and over again by different symphonies so that I just kind of get a broader sense of like what this piece can sound like and inevitably by the time the concert shows up I know the music pretty well you know, maybe not like in an academic or scholarly sense, but my ear recognizes the music, and so that when I'm sitting in the concert hall, my mind is not wandering. Because at the end of the day, classical music is a bit like cigars or whiskey or something, which is, when you have it for the first time, it's not going to be awesome. You know, like, cigars, eh, they're, they're, they are taste kind of bad. Whiskey tastes kind of bad. But what they have, or what we pretend that they have, is kind of a refined... Quality to them, which is, you may not like it at first, but actually, if you spend some time with it, if you get to know it, when it becomes familiar, your palate becomes more discerning. You can find the things that you like, and it's just kind of, it's just something that requires kind of an evolved or adult palate. You know, like I was a very, and I still am in many ways, but I was a, especially when I was younger, I was a very picky eater. And so as an adult, and this happens to come up on dating profiles and in conversation on dates a lot, which is, I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. And the reason for that is because, and we all know this, when we're young, adults drink coffee. And the first time we have a sip of coffee, we're like, wow, that's fucking disgusting. You know, it's the same thing with alcohol. The first time you have a sip of wine or a sip of beer, you're like, this is repulsive. But at the end of the day, we catch a buzz, or we want to catch a buzz. So we sort of teach ourselves to like it. We sort of deal with it. And uh, I guess I'm trying to take this back to food, which is you know when kids are young, younger, there's a lot of things they don't want to eat because they don't like the texture of it. You know, but once you've had it enough, once you eat something enough times, you just kind of get used to it. I'm trying to think of a relative example, a relevant example for me. Maybe something like Brussels sprouts. People famously hey, and I, I don't even know when the first time I had Brussels sprouts was, I, pr- I probably couldn't even muster the courage to try it as a child, but it's the type of thing that by reputation, a picky eater would be kind of adverse to. And I'm sure I didn't like Brussels sprouts the first time I had them, but as I've had them maybe, oh, I don't know, a hundred times, you just kind of get used to it, and it's totally fine. Um, I know I'm not really selling classical music by using this example, but what I am saying is there's something about classical music which is... You know, until it hit me, I was bored to tears by it. You know, when I was younger and I was doing theater, I happened to spend my summers at this performing arts summer camp slash boarding school. And we were required every week to hear the uh, symphony play, the sort of worldview symphony that performed. Every week they would prepare a new piece and give a concert. And so uh, we were all required to attend. And every week, I was just bored to tears, and I fucking hated it. And I guess every once in a while, there was a piece that stood out. Like, I do happen to remember hearing Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. And the reason I was even interested in that is because we, had, we all knew that that was the piece from the movie Shine. Not with Gary Oldman. What's the actor's name? Jeff, Something Rush? Jeffrey Rush? I don't know. We can Google it. But the point is, uh, I do remember one night going and it was because i was particularly excited because we could also go on what were called concert dates which is you know the boys and girls are separated at camp but for the for the weekly concert if you coordinated with one of the uh, lucky females on the other side uh, of the camp you could arrange a concert date where you two could go and sit in a special section of the theater together and kind of watch the show together so i i had a scheduled concert date uh with um you know uh, uh, a lucky female who I uh, kind of had a crush on while I was uh, spending my time at summer camp. And thankfully, she said, yeah, she would go to the concert with me. But the thing I really remember about that concert was the piece, which was Chostakovich's 11th Symphony. Now, when I listen to that piece now, it actually doesn't do a lot for me. Um, but I remember something about that night. It was just so magical. I was just completely, I mean, completely, enthralled in the performance and I remember it not just affecting me but everybody you know we went back to our cabin that night and I I just I I don't know why it had such this such like a magical effect on people but I remember kind of walking back to the cabin and being transfixed by it and you know the the effect was enough that as we were all sort of settling down in our bunks that night I remember our counselor kind of as we were doing a kind of a wind down conversation for the cabin saying, yeah, you know, we've all kind of had a special night, and clearly we all witnessed something very special, so maybe rather than having our typical conversation, let's just all kind of lay down and kind of be contemplative and sit with our thoughts and kind of appreciate the special performance that we had. So that kind of set me off in a direction where I really listened to classical music. Um, Anyway, I realize I'm getting very circuitous. I hope you've enjoyed the story, but I think the point I'm actually arriving at is not that great, except to say that, as I was on this video date with someone, there happened to be, a, uh, simultaneously, there was a live stream from San Francisco Opera. And while I have invested a lot of time in classical music and go to the symphony a lot and uh, generally enjoy that, although I will admit, I actually enjoy, you know, the private experience, whether it's sitting with the score at home and listening to the music or even just doing homework and listening to music uh, more than the concert experience, because You know, maybe I'm just becoming a cantankerous, angry old man, but audiences are, I find, fucking awful. And I know part of that could be that the concert-going audience for classical music typically skews older, so there's a lot of coughing or restlessness or something like that, but I don't know what it is, but I find classical audiences to be especially annoying. And part of it could be that, you know, it's not like the movie theater where everything's just very, very loud. You know, classical concert halls are very dynamic, meaning when the music is quiet, I mean, you know, if you shift in your sh- in your seat, the entire theater can hear it. And so for someone like me who's very noise sensitive, there's just a whole hell of a lot to be distracted by that takes me out of the moment. And uh, it just is the case. When you have a lot of elderly people, there's a lot of coughing, there's a lot of people talking to each other, you know, thinking they're being quiet, but they're not being quiet at all. And we also live in this time where... You know, every single concert I go to, and I mean every single one, somebody's cell at least one cell phone goes off during the concert. And sometimes it's multiple cell phones. And I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I went And you know, my entire life, and it was everything from, you know, turn off your digital watches to your pagers to your cell phones, Rather than living in a period where people are more aware of turning those things off, I feel like I've had more cell phones go off in places where they shouldn't go off um, in the last couple years than I have in my entire life. But the point is, is in addition to going to classical concerts, which I generally enjoy, I've also gone to the opera a little bit more. And again, although I can dig some opera and have seen, a, you know, I've probably gone to the San Francisco Opera since living here maybe like a dozen times. I've watched exponentially more like opera performances on YouTube and on DVD and I've certainly listened to a lot of opera. But I've never, I've never really been into it. And yet, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, yeah, maybe equating it to alcohol or uh, cigars or cigarettes or something that palate, you know, in terms of our palate, we may not like, we're getting something out of it. You know, I think there's like a sort of uh, cultural currency that comes with opera or something, or even just being tangentially related to classical music, there's a there's another should here, which is, hey, if I want to be culturally literate or if I want to be musically literate, there's a certain amount of opera I need to know or expose myself to. So there's, I admit, there's a lot of that kind of driving this. But every time I've gone to the opera, I've never really enjoyed it. And every time I watch opera, I rarely enjoy it. I find it a little bit boring. Um, and yet, you know, I continue to sort of check it out. But one compromise I've sort of found with myself is SF Opera has begun live streaming a lot of their shows now. And it doesn't mean they live stream every performance. But during the season, for each piece that they do, they'll generally live stream one of those performances. So if they do seven or eight shows a year, they'll do like eight live streams a year as well. And so I've kind of compromised with myself, which is rather than shilling out all the money to get the ticket to actually go to the opera and be bored to tears, uh, I'll just live stream it for uh, relatively cheap. And then if I want to sort of sit and watch it, I can. If I want to sort of have it play in the background and do other things, I can certainly do that as well. Well, this happened to be one of the nights where uh, because I've been less enthralled by their performances, you know, SF Opera... I don't know if it's our location in the country or being in California, but they tend to pick, like, I I find their season selection a little confusing. I mean, I happen to think there's probably plenty of mainstays and, uh, you know, uh, essential pieces from the canon that audiences would still be very much excited to see. They tend to pick kind of quirky stuff, and I don't know that they're, I just, you know, I guess, they're you know, they're still around, so they must be doing something right. But, like, I saw, like, what did I see recently? I saw Dialogue of the Carmelites, which, you know, was, like, okay, I guess. But they also do operas like Dream of the Red Chamber, which, like, should have been, like, right up my alley, right? Because I like Chinese literature and stuff. But it was so bad. And I think the, I think it debuted at Dream of the Red Chamber, and it just was reviewed horribly. This, this season, they're doing, like, a Steve Jobs opera, and you're just like, what the fuck? So anyway, I don't know. It must They must be doing something right if the doors are staying open. But I tend to not like what they do with things. Like, for example, you know, I told myself one of the things that I've always wanted to see is a full ring cycle. Uh, Wagner is, yeah, Daring the Sneebelungen. I feel like we've talked about it in the past. But, you know, everybody who does a ring cycle now, they can't just do like a classical ring cycle where they present it as what the story is, which is like a, a piece of like mythology. It always has to be set in like some period of history And something like that where it's modernized or they someone has some crazy take on it or something like that and it's always bad I've never liked that so you know oftentimes I get these streams and I'm just kind of bored out of my mind but they are doing Il Travatore, and I know I'm not pronouncing that perfectly but they're doing Il Travatore right now and while I'm on this date with someone it's sort of like 30 minutes before I'm connecting with this person via video the stream starts and I start watching it and I'm like wow This is actually really fucking great. Not only is the staging very good and all that sort of stuff, but the singing is actually phenomenal. I'm actually kind of getting drawn into it. But I have this video date. We end up chatting for maybe 45 minutes or an hour, and it ends okay. Um, You know, again, pleasant enough conversation. Um, And on some level, for me, that's enough. Maybe one thing to point out, too, is um, in all fairness, a lot of these dates haven't really been me saying, eh, I'm not really thrilled, uh, you know, let's just, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how people wear this stuff, but yeah, I'm not really interested in a second date. Like, for me, it's like, hey, the conversation was fine, that's good enough, I would be open for a second date. The truth is, at the end of the day, it's a lot of people saying, eh, yeah, I didn't really feel the spark," so, eh, maybe not gonna work out, and I typically say, great, I understand, all the best, that's typically how this stuff honestly goes. But the point I'm trying to make is, is after the date, I sort of had to rewind back into the live stream because I guess you have like 48 hours access to it, and I watched it and I was like, "See, this is what I'm talking about," you know. It's just kind of like a more conservative, more traditional production, probably the type of thing that's been done hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of times. You know, this is like a mainstay in the opera repertoire. But it was like so goddamn good. In fact, I was like, "This is one of the best operas I've seen SF Opera do, maybe ever," you know. And it just made me think. Yeah, I don't know why we always have to do the kind of crazy, take this in an entirely different direction type of opera production, because sometimes just, you know, sometimes the color by numbers thing is exactly what the show requires, you know? Anyway, I don't know what that means, but that sort of came to mind for me. Oh, yeah, otherwise, I guess alongside high-minded art-like opera, um... I have. I'm sort of in this period now with school where I have a lot of like midterms and, you know, the first big batch of like papers coming up, and um, I have this. Uh, uh, I have two kind of midterm assignments for my Confucius class coming up next week. I have a in class midterm, and I also have a kind of major paper that's due two days later for that class. So, I've had to spend just a crap ton of time organizing uh, my notes Uh, because I mean thankfully the midterm happens to be an open note test but it means I have to sort of get things together for that because we can't use a device and um, yeah all of my shit is digital so I kind of have to put things in like a printable type of format so I'm typing up a lot of my handwritten notes that I sort of write into my iPad so I'm typing some of those up I'm also creating these summaries of all the readings that we've done but the point is, is that stuff is it's not hard work it's just kind of tedious work that takes a lot of time so, you know, sometimes I listen to music, sometimes I'll have a, a YouTube videos or a movie playing on in the background. And I don't know how I lighted on it, but for some reason, I think I was on, like, HBO Max, I think. But it's like, uh, I just started watching the Blade movies, <laughs> which are fucking, you know, I started watching the first one, and I was like, oh, this will be, like, some good crap to just kind of have on in the background. And I have to admit, the first one's actually not bad, you know? Uh, it took me back to this place where, I don't know when that movie came out, like, maybe 98, 99, and I'm not sure what came first, uh, whether it was Blade or The Matrix, but it just took me back to this place, where, like, the end of the 90s, early 2000s, we were kind of in this, like, like, I don't know if people remember Steampunk was kind of like this, I feel like, was Steampunk, like, the 70s or the 80s, or I don't even know, but it was this kind of, like, imagining of what the future might be. And there's a way in which, like, at the end of the 90s and the 2000s, we all had this kind of, like, Y2K-type modern aesthetic of what we thought the future was going to be like. And it was going to be a lot of, like, transparent raincoats and techno music and dreadlocks and, like, uh, uh, people, like, partying in, like, uh, underground warehouses and strobe lights and that type of thing. And, uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, there was something about this Blade movie that kind of took me back to that, but, uh. But the point is, I, I guess, uh, the, the part that I'm embarrassed to tell you, is uh, while the, the sort of first movie is playing on in the background, and I'm thinking, actually, this is not bad. There's actually some good stuff here. There's some crap too, and actually, the uh, sort of computer graphics from that time period are um, endearing, to say the least. I've not just had the first one on the background, I then go on to have the second one playing in the background, and now as I'm sort of finishing up my notes on the weekend, I actually had to take a break to to sort of record record, uh, this installment. Uh, But I have the third one on in the background as well. And there's a part of me that sometimes I see a couple scenes and I go, oh, that was kind of cool. But then I just kind of hear the dialogue playing in the background. And it's... uh it just reminds me, like, uh, Ryan Reynolds is in one of them, and I was going to say Jessica Alba. I don't think it is. I think it's it's someone else. But it's just funny to have, or Wesley Snipes, you just have all these, like, major celebrities in these movies, and at the end of the day, they're just, like, pretending to be vampires and talking about vampire ov- overlords and mythology, like, hella serious. And it just made me think, God, movies are really stupid. When you really get down to it. Like, you look at a movie like Blade, and you think... How much money and production value and time and creative energy was spent to create a movie about vampires? And you just think, God, movies are really dumb. When you think about all the technical knowledge and know-how and manpower that went into creating this movie about a dude who's just killing vampires, you think, damn. Movies are fucking stupid, and there's plenty of movies that uh, look. I, of course, I, as a guy who loves movies, I, I don't. I'm, I'm sort of saying that in like in jest, but when you look at movies like Titanic or something, at least it's a lot of technical knowledge that's going into like a historical event, or there's sort of a, a love story in the background that's trying to have some type of a, a, you know cumulative emotive impact on the audience. But that, at the end of the day, you think Blade is just a movie about vampires you know, I don't know, I don't know what the budget for Blade was, but I bet it was over 10 million dollars, I mean, 20 million dollars, 40 million dollars, and you think there's so many aspiring, notorious, or creative filmmakers out there who just want to make a small movie that at the end of the day, you could probably shoot, you could probably get it made for, uh, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, with the money that went into Blade 2, well, first of all, let's let's not crap on Blade 1, like, hey, Everybody needs shitty popcorn movies, and that's fine. But you know that the minds of Hollywood got together and were like, "Hey, let's make number two, Which, by the way, was was directed by Guillermo Guillermo del Toro, which is fucking nuts. Because you know, there's a way in which you think like I know James Cameron directed both the you know both the Terminator One and Terminator Two, but Terminator Two is fucking incredible. That's a rare instance where a sequel. Is actually better than the first one. In fact, not only is Terminator Two one of the best sequels of all times, it's one of the best movies of all time. But the point is, is that every once in a while you have these like a tourist filmmakers who do like a really shitty installment of another franchise. Like for example, I'm thinking David Fincher, who was a great tourist filmmaker, who I think I did Alien Three or something like that, and that was like the worst film of the franchise. And you just think, how does such a brilliant filmmaker make such a shitty movie? Now, I haven't seen Alien 3 in forever. And I admit, as uh, the credits for Blade 2 were going up and I saw that Guillermo Guillermo del Toro was the director of this, I was like, oh, well, maybe this will be an instance where you have this really cool uh, auteurist filmmaker who takes this kind of relatively shitty premise and does something really cool with it, a la Christopher Nolan and Batman. Which, by the way, that's another sequence of films that I've never really liked and just you know, because I have things playing on in the background all the time, I had all three of the Nolan Batman films kind of playing. And again, I was reminded these movies are not fucking good. Like, we talk about them as if they're great. They're not good. In fact, they have a lot of what makes Blade suck, which is as I'm watching this, I go, wow, look at all this brilliant filmmaking and technology that's gone into talking about fucking Batman. Like, at the end of the day, it's fucking Batman. I mean, the only thing worthwhile is you think, I bet Christopher Nolan cut his teeth on these movies, and I'm sure there's a lot that he sort of learned or gleaned from the process of making these films that was attributed to films, or or, you know, he was able to bring to bear on films like Inception and Interstellar and Oppenheimer and all that sort of stuff. But the movies themselves are not good. The best part of the whole franchise is Heath Ledger's Joker performance, and even that, you're like, dude, it's fucking Batman, you know? So anyway, where am I going with this? Um, something about Guillermo del Toro <laughs> and Blade Two. Oh, I don't know. Maybe my brain's rotting. Maybe I've spent so much time in Google Sheets and uh, just marinating and all this sort of stuff that I think my brain's rotting. Yeah, it's 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 kind of, kind of in a weird place right now. I was sort of saying when I was spending my time in Taiwan and I was so stoked to see myself every day kind of getting after it and doing stuff Uh, it's weird to find myself in this place where my I feel like my brain is constantly going a mile a minute I'm constantly being stimulated intellectually but in my body I just feel so sedentary and so you know I'm just doing the same shit every day and so much of my time is just spent sitting in a chair and like reading stuff and uh yeah I just feel so sedentary anyway um yeah, speaking of my brain rotting, I feel like my mind is going a thousand different directions right now. And it's sort of funny, I look up and I I'm seeing we don't have a whole hell of a lot of time left together. But there was a moment there, you know, when I fire up the mic, I have no idea what I'm gonna talk about. And I really felt like, man, we are just firing on all cylinders. Not that I'm talking about anything interesting, but you know, I feel the wind at my back and I'm like, Man, the conversation's really going. And now I'm just thinking, man, I have no idea how we'll traverse the end of this thing. Actually, as I'm thinking about it, I had a whole date that I completely forgot about, which was amongst the weirdest dates I've ever been on. I connected with this person who, uh, you know, I mean, I went into it with very low expectations. I know that this person is only in the area for a little bit. They're kind of traveling around the country. But when I met up with this person, um, one, they didn't look a whole hell of a lot like their picture. But again, I'm in this place in my life where, you know, um, when I show up, uh, if I'm if it's readily apparent that there's not going to be any romantic sparks, I'm still confident in my ability to get through our time together and have a meaningful conversation. Maybe it comes from my time as like a crisis counselor where I'm just sort of constantly connecting with people I have no experience of and I very immediately need to get the conversation started and at least stay on the phone with them for 15 minutes, sometimes much longer. But the idea of like being able to listen actively and just kind of keep the ball volleyed and keep a conversation going, uh, that's something I feel relatively comfortable doing. Hey, and maybe it comes maybe it's also a skill set i have developed as a dude who just makes himself talk into a, a microphone for an hour each week but um, that's fine uh, we get the conversation going but as we're sort of spending time together we're sort of walking around Berkeley and they had not seen the campus yet so we're kind of walking around campus and again although this person is very nice there was just a couple moments where I was just had to do a kind of a double take where I was like I don't know if there was just a lot of assumptions on my part, but there were a lot of revelations uh, that I was just not anticipating. Like, at one point in the conversation, she's like, well, well, I have two grown children. You know, they're like, uh, well, maybe grown is not the right word for it, but she had like two children who were like 12 and 14. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the other part, as we're about three quarters of the way through our date, uh, she was planning to go to this performance or something. Um, that I was not volunteering to attend, and I said, oh, we'll just spend a little bit of time together, and then I'll be able to walk into this thing. As we're walking to that, she's like, oh, well, my boyfriend back in the country where she comes from, and I was just like, hey, what? <laughs> I don't know if they have an open relationship or what's going on. I mean, I guess it was clear from the time that we're spending together that this is not going to be a... I think we both went in with very low expectations about, um, yeah, uh, what, what was going on necessarily but it was like those are exactly the type of things that people need to know about, you know. Very very strange. But I will say I, I'm convinced, and 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 I know maybe other people can weigh in on this. But I, for, as I'm thinking about this, I think even though these have not been like great dates, I will say the walking date is a good date. You know, I think it's really underestimated as well. Like I typically reach out to people. And sometimes I don't know. Well, here, uh, as a basis of comparison, I did connect with somebody on this dating app one time, semi-recently. And although the conversation was good, and we were kind of at that point where it was like, "Hey, this has been going well. I would look forward to continuing the conversation in person." My first offer is, "Hey, yeah, I would look forward to continuing the conversation. Continuing the conversation over." A coffee or a drink or something like that sometime soon. Even though I don't drink coffee, we can have that conversation later. But that's just like a colloquial, a colloquial way of saying, "Yeah, let's go on a date, right?" But uh, this person responded to me, and they said, "I," and it was, it was kind of funny. But they said, "I think coffee dates are where romance goes to die." Was literally how they responded to me. And I don't want to make fun of them. I mean, people can like what they like. But in a way, I kind of understood what they were saying, which is it sounded to me like they were saying, hey, that's kind of formulaic, you know, and I think they went on to say something like, well, you don't see someone involved in their passions and something like that. I think the the alternative was that she was having some kind of art show or something like that that she wanted me to go to. And even though our interaction would be limited, it would be a chance for me to like see them in their element. And my thing was like, fuck that. I'm not going to come to your art show where you're going to be like the center of attention and you're going to have a lot of people kind of vying for your time and you and I are not going to be able to connect because although that's a perfectly fine thing to do and if this was day three or four and we knew each other, I would be more than stoked to go to your art show and support you. It's not about me needing all the attention in the world. My thing was like, this is a first date. It needs to be democratic. Right? It needs to be you and I meeting in a mutual place where we can really see if we even enjoy each other's time. Because if the roles were reversed, if, I, like, as a musician say, if I was like, hey, I'm playing this show, why don't you come? And our first date is you coming, seeing, seeing me perform. That's super shitty, right? Like, hey, come see me doing this thing where I'm the center of attention for X amount of time. And there's this complete power imbalance where now, if we do have a chance to talk, you're not approaching me as like just the dude. That you would normally just be on a date with. I'm the dude who everyone's been looking at for the last hour. And, you know, and it just kind of changes this thing. So, although it sounds very cool, this person is explaining it to me as like, oh, you get to see someone in their element and doing their passions. To me, it felt very defended. You know, it actually felt a bit like, hey, I'm actually a little, you know, like on a, on a sort of, uh, Uh, armchair psychology perspective to me it felt like hey I'm actually a little uncomfortable about just like sitting down across from you at coffee and just having a conversation which is what I'm going for right so the only reason I'm even bringing this up and why I'm recommending the walking date is one is just an observation which is I think in general although you can certainly do it sitting across from each other at a coffee table I think going for a walk with somebody is actually very conducive to conversation and I don't know if it has something to do with the fact that you're both, like on a, on a, on a, on a psychological level, you two are, are literally facing the same direction. You're already engaged in a kind of a mutual task, if that makes sense. You're both facing the same direction. You're walking in the same direction. And by extension, you're kind of like have the same objective and goal. You're already on the same page on one level. It actually helps foster conversation because you're not forced to like look at each other. There's plenty of other things to let your eyes kind of look at, and in that way, you can kind of give more free reign to your thoughts. And I find it just helps the conversation flow a little bit. Like, if for some reason you run out of things to say, and by the way, I think letting things fall into silence is actually a very good exercise sometimes. One, it helps you kind of recuse yourself of the responsibility of, like, taking responsibility for the conversation of needing to say something all the time. But it's also an interesting moment to observe the other person and see how well they tolerate silence or how they deal with that. You know, I'm not saying that uh, we need to judge them necessarily, but I actually find in those moments to see them squirm a little bit actually makes me a little more comfortable about my own nerves. because so I think sometimes when we do take responsibility for things or, you know, when there is that kind of insecurity about feeling like we need to kind of put up all the time, it can actually be nice in a moment of silence to see the other person kind of see their gear start to turn remind yourself hey I'm not the only one who's having this you know kind of weird experience so that can be humbling but I think the walking date is underrated so if you happen to find yourself on a date I would recommend a walk you know because at the end of the day my thought is is like if you can go for a walk with somebody and genuinely enjoy the time with them I'm not saying that you sit across from and you think this is the person I'm going to marry But if you could just like meet up with someone for a walk or even something as pedestrian as coffee and get a conversation started, you're going to enjoy anything with them. Whereas like on dating profiles, sometimes, you know, adventure is the fucking word that you see all the time that makes me sick. Oh, let's go on an adventure for our first date. It's like, let's definitely not do that. Like you think skydiving is a good first date? We're not going to get to know each other or going to a concert or like going to a movie you know, I think anything that engenders, if that's the right word, conversation is probably the best thing, right? Anyway, I'll admit, I'm just frankly trying to think of things to fucking talk about. So, <clears throat> anyway, I guess we'll see if I can kill a couple minutes to sort of get us over the finish line right now, but I do not have therapy tomorrow. And, uh, gosh, I mean, we'll just have to see. I mean, in some ways, since seeing my therapist last Monday, I feel like I've had this complete kind of about-face with what my future might be like, you know? It's like one weekend I'm thinking about, you know, needing to get my Mandarin level up to the point where I can take a graduate program in Taiwan, and now I'm I'm only exclusively looking at English-taught master's programs in China, you know? Not only thinking, hey, maybe I don't need to focus on my language as much, oh, and maybe I'll be in an entirely different country for graduate school. And so we'll see. Maybe this time next week, I will have decided to um, abandon all my efforts and drop out of Berkeley months before graduating to go to clown college or something like that. But again, maybe just trying to tie things together is... I'm not saying you struggle with this. I'm not saying other people struggle with this as much, but it's wild to me to think about how much work, and how much diligence, and how much like I'm trying to think of a, like a like a of a of a synonym for like observation diligence. You have to be on guard. I do. One has to be on guard all the time. One with my dispositions has to be on guard all the time, of whether or not they're actually doing what they want, or whether they're doing what they think they should be doing. And I guess it's weird for me because I feel like, you know, I know everyone's different and I try to not make too, I try, even though I definitely fail all the time, I try not to make too many assumptions about what other people are going through or what's motivating them, but I just have to believe, you know, I think it's objectively true that I'm not a dumb person, You know, one may not like me, one may not like the things that I do or uh, the efforts to which I direct my intelligence, but, uh, you know, I'm not a dumb guy, but, you know, I have had to spend so much time and energy and diligence in therapy and working on myself to even just become a, like, even get uh, this type of uh, thing on my radar, let alone having to stay so mindful of it all the time that I just have to believe and even as I'm saying this, I'm saying, well, maybe it's not a it's not a measure of intelligence. Intelligence is the wrong word for it. It's something else. Or if it is intelligence, it's it's not like bookishness. It's emotional intelligence. It's emotional awareness. It's you know the type of insight or knowledge that we're all really trying to gain or that we value in life, which is not the the, the you know the, the books that we read. It's a, it's a certain type of discernment. You know, I think we all live our life knowing that on some level we're kind of corrupted by society and we spend, you know, the, the vast majority of our lives, if it's well spent, is kind of a great unlearning, a kind of return to a type of tabula rasa type uh, purity that maybe we had as children that we're trying to sort of uh, retain or return to as adults Um and so I just have to believe that if I've invested this much time and energy and having to unlearn this kind of should thing, especially in this chapter of my life, this late in my life, I just have to believe that there's so many untold millions, tens, and hundreds of millions, of billions of people who have, you know, just look up at this chapter of their life and just realize that every meaningful, at every major crossroads, every meaningful decision that they ever made, if they actually had their druthers about it, probably would have taken a different course. And it doesn't mean that their lives are miserable. I'm not saying that. Because at the end of the day, no matter where your life goes, it's going to be what it is. you know. And barring the type of you know, unavoidable but uh, objective tragedies that none of us want to live with, most of us turn out just fine. It doesn't mean that our lives are miserable, but it does mean that if we really thought about it, I think most people probably live a life where they say, oh, I probably would have done a different major. I probably would have gone into a different career. I probably would have married a different person. Um, I probably, yeah, I don't know. I think I was gonna say going to say go into another job, but that is a career. But I think you get the point of what I'm trying to say. And I know that sounds, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I guess there are a lot of assumptions there. But I just know, for me, it's just like my, in this regard of like making these types of commitments to things that... And look, at the end of the day, regretting something is not the end of the world, right? It, what's the worst that could happen? You realize it's a mistake, and to the extent that it's humanly possible, you could always you know, change course or something like that. I mean, there's something to be learned through that process as well. But I just feel like at every major crossroads, I've just had to be hyper-vigilant about what the right choice is going to be. And to me, it just feels like navigating a fucking minefield. And it doesn't mean that other people aren't doing it, right? I guess, yeah, to say that other people have just kind of made the wrong choice, I guess, is a big assumption. But the point I'm trying to make is I don't hear anybody talking about it. And so because nobody's talking about it, it makes me feel very alone in my feelings about it. And uh, if that's true for me, I just assume it's true for other people also. So sorry to harp on this over and over again, but maybe this will be another one of the greatest hits or themes of this personal journal which is navigating the minefield uh, of uh, what you want to do and what other people think you should be doing so uh, probably not the last time we'll talk about it and it's certainly not the first however with that thankfully I look up and I see we're at the end of our time and I can stop trying to frantically reach for topics to talk about Um, still you know I'll defer to your experience but I still think there's a couple good things that came up in that and things I should continue to think about, and hopefully you'll continue to think about too between now and the next time we connect. So until then, I'll say thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and ciao for now.